Have you guys started reading what he did? Somebody? Have you started? I was really. No, I didn't read. I didn't start it. I just bought the book. I was really pleased at the Monday night class. There were a number of people who are a quarter of the way through or. Wow. Hi, Don. Oh, it's just I was reading. Proud. <laughs> Um, I think Linda, Susanna, sitting somewhere. You want to make room here? We can. I'll just sit back here. You sure? Where'd she go? Who knows? Has anybody started reading? Yeah, great. Yeah, good. It really is a it really is a delightful book. The language the language is going to be much easier than Shakespeare's, so you should be happy about that. <coughs> students complain about this is. I don't know that it's relevant for you guys, but students sometimes complain because the English is a little bit more formal than our contemporary language. So sometimes the young kids get frustrated. But if you compare it to Shakespeare. Um, it's a breeze. Where did my wife go? And where is? Oh wow! <coughs> what is this? Did you? Did everybody get something to eat? There's, there's uh, bread and. This room sort of dignifies the class. It feels so <laughs> formal here. That, are, are you all ready to have the meeting this morning, you guys? Yes. Yes. Okay. Are you using Robert's rules of order? No, I don't know. What, <laughs> what are we going to meet about here? Everybody knows we've got books, and, and these are $12, not 10 and there are study guides that are available for a couple of dollars if you want them. And I think I mentioned, I don't know if I mentioned this before, but, um, but I, you, there's an essay in the back of the book on, um, beginning on 661. 661, there's three essays. Um, I've written the first one, and um, I would encourage you to read it. It's not essential that you do, but I think it's a really good overview of the, um, I think it gets to, I mean, it was my effort to get to the heart of this book. And um, there's two others, one by a, a good friend, um, Mitch Caucasian. And another by a man who gives a political reading. So there are three 
Very different views of Moby Dick. Uh, I think you would enjoy if you read them. And the study guide works off of those essays and the books, so um, it's, a, it's a decent study guide. It's, it's obviously more thorough and it covers more than that little structure sheet I gave you, but that structure sheet should help you. One last thing too, I've not, I've not, when we did the epics, um, I went through it, tried to go through at an even pace, so we were doing, if I remember, eight, eight chapters per meeting because it seemed to me that was a, a reasonable amount to cover because I really didn't want to load up on you guys. Morning. And, no, no, um, there's food, help yourselves, and coffee, and there are books, the books are $12, not 10 because we, okay, and there's study guides that are $2 each, um, where was I? You were structure of how many chapters? Oh, yeah. And it was easy to, to, to break it down that way because we could go through it without pressing and I didn't want to do that with you guys. Just It wasn't a school setting so we didn't have to be quite as tight. Um, but this book has 135 chapters. Um, what I'm going to try to do roughly, just to help, is I, I think I'm going to try to roughly cover around 15 chapters. Some of the chapters are, a lot of the chapters are three pages long. Those of you who read, are reading already know that, so roughly about 40 pages. If we do that, we should be able to get through the book in two months, which is, I think, more time than we gave any of the epics. I'm not sure. But I don't want to hold to that too fast. You know, I'd like to try to be as flexible as we can I'm not going to cover all the chapters, there's too much to do, um, and if you look at that structure sheet I gave you, you'll see, if you've, take, if you've got that structure sheet and you've got it color-coded, I think you should have it color-coded, I'm not, but you'll see that I've um, um, highlighted and put in red chapters which seem to me to be more important so that if you find yourself falling behind and you get worried by the way don't worry just try to read it as you know and and enjoy it it really is an enjoyable book but if you find yourself getting behind and you're concerned at least try to cover those chapters that are in red um, because I'm, I'm going to be very selective about what I pick out because there's just not there's no way to cover a book this long given the time that we have, so that should help, okay? I think that's it. Um, let's pray. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, thank you again, Lord, for um, the gift of our life from you and the gift of yourself to us, particularly in Mass. And we carry, each of us, all of us, carry you within us, um, taste and see, you are real. Help us to find a strength from your life within us and um, bring um, your life to all that we do. Make it visible, present, um, particularly in all that we do with each other, but 
in some ways even more especially with those who don't know you. Um, um, I ask a special prayer, a special blessing on those here um, um, who carry concerns in their hearts. I'm sorry that I didn't ask you, but um, watch over um, those who are needful um, um, and those who are suffering. Ask us um, a special blessing on Obama and his family as he leaves office. Um, help him to take away from his um, experience, his years of experience as our president, um, some learning that will um, help him in, um, in the work that he continues to do, um, help him to um, speak to the divisions our, in our country and do what he can to overcome them. I ask for a special blessing on Trump um, and his family. Um, help him to grow in humility, in a spirit of serving. Um, help him to, um, to take seriously the need to um, put away the divisions to overcome them in our country um, so that we can, as a people together, um, uh, not only improve our situation here, but look out for the needs of others in countries where people don't have as much as we do. Let this be the beginning of a good time for our country, um, for itself, and as a servant in the rest of the world. We ask this in your name, Christ. Who? Oh, for Bev. Um, um, what? Bev's okay. She 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 asked for our prayers. She's I think she's got a cold or a flu. So, watch over Brett, Bev. Um, keep her well. Protect her. Let no harm come to her and um, help her return to class next week. We ask all these prayers um, in you, Christ, our Lord. Amen. Okay. What I wanted to do this morning is, is um, wait, let me go back. Originally, when we, um, when we made our plans to do Winter's Tale, I'd intended and just spending one class on Winter's Tale because we were going to watch the movie and I thought the movie would pretty well take care of things. Um, I don't know how you all found the movie. I, I, I know the quality of it wasn't good so it was difficult to follow and the sound system made some of the poor qualities even worse. So, um, By the way, I've got a copy or copies of Winter's Tale if you want to take them home and watch them because in the, I think in a smaller setting um, you wouldn't be distracted as much by the, by the poor quality of the movie. It so, is real quality in it when you play it at home. Did it, you? Yeah, and it was excellent. Yeah, yeah. I could see. Yeah, and watching it a second time without the distractions I think would help. The other thing that I was especially aware of in the movie that I hadn't thought about until we were there in the hall, and, and it just was reinforced by the quality, the, the poorness of it, was this, how much the second half um, might have put you to sleep. I know that's an exaggeration, but um, it struck me this time in a way that that's uh, never happened before, and I think it's because we were in a large setting, and I tend to be so conscious of, you know, if things are not going right, it concerns me because I'm not sure that you'll get as much out of it. But 
one of the things that struck me about the movie was the radical shift between that tragic action in the first half and the comic action in the second half and how much of it was focused on Autolycus. And I thought, I'm not sure that this is true, you'll have to tell me. I thought, will they be bored? And that was a real concern for me that I've not had before. Because it, in one sense, it seems like such a falling off. Um, but actually, I hope today I can show you that that's not the case. That what happens in the second part is remarkable, but it consists of things ordinarily we wouldn't see. So I, I hope to bring those out today. But anyway, if you do watch it at home, I think it'll be a better experience. But we had originally planned to just do one meeting on Wintersdale after the movie, since we had the movie. But last week I thought, I don't want to do this because I don't want to rush through, so we, we dealt with part of it. And we saved the end today because I really want to give some attention to the ending because I think what Shakespeare is doing in the ending there is, is not only remarkable, but it's unheard of. All, all of his plays tend to fall into tragedies and comedies. You can put the histories off in a separate category. They really belong to the comedy. Um, but, but what he's doing in a group of plays towards the end of his life is truly remarkable. They're called romances. And I believe, this isn't the sort of language critics will use to describe those plays, but I believe there's something sacramental in them. And I think Winter's Tale is his greatest play, and it's rarely read. If you ask teachers and kids coming out of school, even, even English majors you know, who've taken Shakespeare, if they know Winter's Tale, they'll probably shake their head and say, I've never heard of it. And, and I think it's his most extraordinary play. So I wanted to save time to, to really focus on the ending because what he's doing is so special. So, so we carried it over. But I didn't want to give a whole period to Wintersdale, so I thought we would start. Maybe Dick can get you guys going. So <coughs> I want to take a few minutes to just lay out some things in Moby Dick. Um, a couple of things, first of all. If you don't know, I'm going to go into this more thoroughly when we meet next week. Ishmael is a figure from the Bible. He, um, he, he, he belongs to that Abraham story, um, Sarah story um, in Genesis. If, you're, if you don't know, Abram and Sarai were together, and Sarai was reaching an age where she couldn't have children anymore and wanted a child, and she asked her husband, Abram, to... Um, conceive a child with her handmaid, Hagar. And they did, and the child that was born from this offline was Ishmael. And um, Ishmael is the head of the founder of Islam. I don't know if you know that, but it's really important to know that. Um, I'll, I'll go into this a little bit more next week. He is the founder, and if you read Genesis, you'll see that God describes him, or the, the, the prophet describes him as a, a wolf-like man, and a man that's going to be aggressive in everything that he does all of his life, and people will be aggressive against him. Um, I'm going to read, I just want to do this briefly. Next week we'll, we'll look at it a little bit more closely. Um, after Hagar conceives Ishmael, Sarah becomes offended and um, tells Abram to get rid of her because 
Hagar looked at her in contempt because she had a child and Sarah didn't. So they um, exiled them. <clears throat> They're brought back. And later, Sarah will have a child. God will come to her and say, you will have a child. She laughs at God. She doesn't think it's going to happen because she says she's too old. And um, in that period, God comes to Abraham, Abram and tells him he will change his name, that he's going to establish a covenant, covenant with him. He will be the leader of all the nations of the earth, basically. His name changes at that point to mark that a covenant, a new covenant begins. Circumcision will be the mark of it. So the Jews and Islams take circumcision absolutely seriously because they see that as a, as a sign of their being under that covenant with God. And um, Sarai will change her name too. Her name will become Sarah. So um, um, they conceive a son and the name of that son is Isaac. Isaac is the chosen one. He will carry on the line that began with Abram, you know, that will lead to David and finally to Christ. Ishmael will be the outcast one. He will be the lead, God says to him, he will be the leader of a, of, a, of a multitude of nations, a great nation. And we have a sense early on that there will be the strife. Now, the interesting, one of the interesting things to take away from this is, this is God. He knows exactly what he's doing. He allowed it, and he said to um, Ishmael, you will be the leader of a great nation. And his earlier description says, you know, you will lay your hand on other men and other men will lay your hand. There's going to be nothing but aggression. So this is biblical. <coughs> I mean, we may wish Islam away, but its roots are there in Scripture. So I want to look at that a little bit more carefully. But Ishmael is the central character of this figure. And his origins are divine. He has a, an important place in Scripture in God's plan for things. Why did Melville choose um, to name his central character Ishmael. It's just an important thing we have to look at. Um, one of the really important things to keep in mind is that we've moved from an epic world to a novel. Those of you who have been um, with us since the beginning know that the epic is very different from the novel. We've not done a novel till now. This would be the first one. We did all the ancient epics and, and um, the Divine Comedy is a modern, pre-modern epic, and then we did Shakespeare, we moved into drama. This will be our first epic. A couple of things to keep in mind as we go first forward. Novel. Huh? First novel. First novel. God. It's getting worse and worse. It really is. Um, remember, the epic means divine word, a divine song, a word spoken, the logos. It means all of those things. We, we know that in each of the epics, the, the poet begins by invoking the help of the gods to bring a divine word, a divine way of looking at things that is beyond human understanding. So all the ancient epics had to do with, uh, with some action on the part of the gods in the human order. They're constantly intervening. Those of you who did the Iliad and the Odyssey know that. And we, we know that um, that principle carried through with Dante because even though we don't see the gods, we know from our reading of the Divine Comedy that the whole divine order was put into, into, into motion to start that even though we don't see it. You remember what I'm talking about. 
Remember the beginning we learned that um, Virgil came to Dante. Virgil is the one who tells Dante that Mary had taken pity on him. She'd gone to see <coughs> Lucia, and Lucia had gone to see Beatrice because she knew how much Dante loved her. So what we see is this, um, this action of love in God's order that, that is set in motion on behalf of Dante. So the gods are working, but they're nowhere visible. They're implied behind everything that goes on. And um, we know that the gods have been involved in the plays that we looked at. Remember Hamlet in the, in the Channel Crossing said, even there heaven, heaven was ordinate. That he changes in that crossing and he begins to realize that there's, there's some god looking out for him. That radically <coughs> changes everything he does. But, but the gods aren't visible. <clears throat> um, in the modern novel, the, the word novel means new. It's a new narrative form. And one of the, one of the reasons it, it takes a new form is because it comes into existence roughly about the time of the Copernican, shortly after the Copernican Revolution. So the novel is far more empirical, far more secular. In, in its beginnings, it has nothing to do with the gods. So we're shifting from a worldview in which the gods um, play a large role in what men do to a worldview in which the gods don't even seem to exist. If you go back to the, the early novels, Don Quixote, um, Robinson Crusoe, by the way, I'm, I don't know if you know these things, Robin Caruso, Robinson Crusoe is about a founding. That's that old epic thing, remember? If, if you don't know the story, he, he gets shipwrecked and gets left on an island by himself, and he has to recreate the world to survive. So even Defoe, who's writing one of the first novels, is aware of that epic tradition, of the importance of foundings. Except what's happening here is it's a new kind of founding because it's based on self-preservation. So lots of things mark the shift from the epic to the novel. We're entering a new world. Um, <clears throat> think about some of the... Um, and, and Don Quixote, I, I, don't know if, I don't know what you guys know, but if you know anything about that, you know that Don Quixote is this old guy who, who grew up reading um, um, chiv chivalric romances about knights and their adventures, and he goes into the world carrying on those, carrying forward those ideals of a knight, but he ends up fighting windmills and ghosts and illusions, and, and you know, everybody thinks he's mad. And that's what makes him such a delightful character because he, he absolutely believes in what he's doing. He's looking back to a past that nobody believes in anymore. Um, it, it's Cervantes' way of parodying the shift that's taking place at this time. We've left that Christian, Catholic, chivalric world and entered a, a world which is unheroic, unchivalric. Um, and yet Don Quixote is sort of carrying it forward heroically, foolishly. Um, um, when you when you get to Jane Austen and Dickens and Thackeray and you know the rest, we are in a secular world. That, that world dealing with the sacred or the gods is gone, and the field has tremendously shifted. If you remember, in the epic world, the epic world consisted of three domains: Olympus, the gods, the heavens, the earth, the temporal order, where all the battles took place, and the underworld. And that, that breakdown, it's carried over in Dante, 
because we begin by going into the underworld, we go to purgatory and then into the heavens. And all of them have reference to the earthly order because they imply what was going on on the earth with all the people who are in the next life, whether it's the underworld or heaven. Or. So Dante carries that, that, that cosmic view of the epic forward, but he radically changes it in one way, and you know that. The ancient epics were written in heroic languages, classical Greek, um, in um, Latin. Yeah. Anybody writing an epic at Dante's time would have been, um, would have assumed that if you were going to write an epic, you'd have to do it in one of the classical languages, most likely Latin. Dante didn't. He wrote it in the vernacular, and he took himself as the subject <coughs> of the epic. So, in that way, he, he carries the epic tradition forward, but he's also radically changing. In some ways, you can say that's the first novel. Remember, all the ancient epics look back to an idealized past, and my presentation of those epics, if you remember, is that people tend to be caught in that past, and the action of the epic brings somebody into the present. So we break out of that old past. Achilles did it, Odysseus did it, Aeneas did it, Dante does it. Um, the, the modern novel is set in the present, almost always. Um, so, um, Melville belongs to a modern category. He's writing what seems to be a novel um, but the interesting thing about it is its epic scope, and uh, we're going to have to go through it some. Uh, some of that will become clear in a, in a minute because I want to read from. I want to read some passages that will make that clear. Um, the Moby Dick looks back to Dante's Commedia in one sense, and. I believe that in, in an amazing way, Melville's actually trying to pick up with something that was left behind in the Catholic medieval tradition. The hero of the novel is Ishmael, and like Dante, Ishmael has already had the journey. So there are two Ishmaels in this book, just like there are two Dantes. Dante the journeyer, the pilgrim who took the, the, his journey through the afterlife, who had to come back and tell the story. And you know from your reading of Dante that what he did, he believed was prophetic. He, he, um, he learned from all these people in hell, or in heaven, that he had a calling. That he had to go back and tell the truth, even if it was going to make people unhappy with him. Ishmael's the same. Ishmael's a, a journeyer. The Ishmael that is speaking to us at the beginning of the book has already had this experience. So two things to keep in mind. One is, he's already had it. And the other is, does he learn anything in writing about the, the adventure that he has? Because you know, I think it's true for most of it, when we reflect back on things and look at them and try to articulate what happens, we very often discover things about that journey we had that we didn't see at the time. So, that's an important aspect of the meaning of this book. He took a journey, well, it happened, so there it was, yeah. But how much of what was really present did we see at the time? So, there, there are two meanings, two levels of meaning that are really important to keep in mind here. One is the journey, it literally happened the way he describes it. 
But what we, what we become aware of as we go through it is that Ishmael reflects on this all the time. Okay? One more thing, too. Early on in the, play, or in the novel, you know that Ishmael goes to Father Mapple's service. He's the minister there. And Mapple talks, um, gives his homily um, in terms of the Jonah story. And it becomes clear from, from that chapter and so much of what happens later, particularly is when Ishmael goes on board, when you watch what happens with Ishmael when he goes on board and compare it to what happens when Jonah goes on board and deals with the captain, then the identity becomes explicit, should be clear. Jo- Ishmael is a Jonah figure. He's the only one that survives the wreck at the end. So if he's an Ishmael figure, a Jonah figure, what has he come back to tell us? <coughs> because you know that this, the, jo- the Jonah is a, is a scriptural story. It's prophetic. God wants Jonah to, to take a message to the Ninevites, and he wants to avoid it. He does everything he can to avoid it. Um, he comes back to tell the Ninevites something they have to hear. That, that means, in some ways, we're the Ninevites. And by the way, we're a Christian culture. Um, not, not an Old Testament culture. So what's Melville doing? What does Ishmael, what does he learn from his journey, and what does he come back to tell us? To ask that question puts the book in a prophetic context. There's something prophetic about this book in the way there was for Dante and the Divine Comedy. Um, um, one last thing on this epic novel. Um, you, I think you know. If you don't, you'll soon find out. The story's about Ahab and his quest to take, to take vengeance on this whale that took off his leg. <coughs> um, there are two ways of reading in the book. One of them's Ahab's. There's nothing that he sees that he doesn't read in terms of a vengeance. This whale took his leg. He was raised Christian. All, all that happens makes him question doctrines that he would have inherited as a Christian, a Protestant, in America about predestination, good and evil. Um, he can't look at nature without finding evil everywhere. One of the most serious questions is whether what motivated this whale was a malevolent spirit behind the universe working through it so that it's even present in a whale. Okay, I'll come back to that because this is crucial. So he has one way of reading the world, the universe. Ishmael has a, a very different way. When Ishmael starts out, um, he joins Ahab's quest. Ahab will call everybody together on the deck and in what looks almost like a religious ceremony, it's almost like a parody of the Eucharist. He will pour blood into wine and I mean into the um, harpoon sockets and have everybody drink. Um, and there may be even a suggestion of something anti, anti-Catholic that Melville would have understood as in terms of being popish because that's what they called the Catholics then. We'll have to look at that, but it's a, it's a liturgical moment and everybody signs on to the quest. And it's really clear that they do because everybody in that company 
identifies with Ahab. They've all suffered unjustly, they believe. So they want to get back, and they want to strike back at this nature. Um, Ishmael is one of that company. But what happens over the course of this story is Ishmael repeatedly begins to distance himself from Ahab. We can call those peripatias. Remember the moment, the turn, the peripatia? That he undergoes repeated, what we would call today conversions. And Melville tracks them. He keeps changing until at some point he completely dissociates himself from that quest. He will be the only man to survive that quest. But over the course of that quest, he begins to look at nature and question it. So he brings to his reading of nature the same kind of spirit Dante did in the Divine Comedy. He finds intelligibility and meaning everywhere. So there are two very different ways of looking at reading the world and two very different ways of understanding what the world is. And on Ahab's side, there's a question of whether there isn't some sinister spirit directing things. On Ishmael's, it is this wonder that nature is full of beauty, intelligibility, order, purpose. Um, so as you read, keep in mind that there are multiple levels of an action going on. Okay? And at the heart of it is this whole question of reading. Um, this crisis. Some interesting things happening at this point in history. I, I think what's happening is this. Um, Two different ways of reading came into conflict with each other in about the 16th, 17th century with, uh, with Copernicus's discovery of the science. The, it's what produced Shakespeare because during the Renaissance, the, the whole Ptolemaic way of looking at the world was turned over, absolutely turned on its head. So people began to question everything, the metaphysical underpinnings of everything. So it's one of the reasons Shakespeare did as much as he did, because he grew up in that. It was that period of questioning what everything means and the metaphysical basis of things. You get profound works of art that I think the same th sort of thing is happening right now um, because of discoveries in science. Um, but two different ways of reading came into conflict. One of them was biblical, traditional, it went back to the beginnings, and this new scientific way. Be because they came to different conclusions, two different ways of reading the world, and they're colliding, and they produce this crisis, because what's happening in mid-19th century is the, the theology behind the Protestant founding, the, the New England founding, the Eastern Seaboard, which is basically Protestant, is in collapse. That theology is virtually gone. Protestants continue to live their faith, but that faith has disintegrated into a moral code. They no longer believe in the, the doctrines of Calvin or, or Luther, particularly Calvin, because they, they seem to be so inhuman in so many ways. Ahab's living out those doctrines. If we don't see that part of what's going on in him is that he, he's been raised on these doctrines, and he's struggling against the inhuman effects of them, then we're missing something of the tragic dimension in Ahab. His whole life is a questioning of what's going on in the universe given these beliefs that he was raised on. Okay? So these two different ways are coming into collision. That's one thing to see. And the, if you watch Ahab and, and Ishmael, 
you, you can see them played out because Ahab isn't vindictive, he wants to get back in this whale and um, Ishmael begins to question things and he's overcome with the wonder and beauty and order of things. Um, last, um, last thing to keep in mind about this crisis, one of the interesting things that's occurring at this moment is this, if you look at the literature up until mid-19th century, almost all the literature written in America is British in character. The language is English. It's decorous, it's proper, very articulate, very formal. Um, I'm not sure what else I can say about it. Um, if you look, interesting, if you look at the English literature being written at this time, Jane Austen, Thackeray, Dickens, Trollope, well, all those people, that liter, as I've said before, that literature is secular, absolutely secular. It deals with people in, in a social setting. It's not cosmic. It's not epic. If you look at Moby Dick and Hawthorne's Scarlet Letter, it, it, those works are fundamentally religious. They, have, they deal with metaphysical religious issues. So mid-19th century, England is continuing to write secular novels, the great <coughs> novelists that we know of, 19th century novelists. In mid-19th century, the two great American writers are writing, Scarlet Letter and Moby Dick, fundamentally about a radical change that's taking place in America. <coughs> so it, it shows something very deep about the American character, number one. And number two, it's, it's being written at a time when American writers know that if they're going to continue to have a literary tradition, they've got to find their own voice. They have to learn just what it means to be an American and find an American idiom. So if you look at, if you, if you put Moby Dick or Scarlet Letter next to Cooper, let's say James Fenimore Cooper a little bit earlier, or Longfellow or some earlier American artist, you begin to recognize that something extraordinary is happening. That America's beginning to find a voice to tell a story about something peculiarly American. So right now, mid-19th century, we're reading a book that marks that change. Okay, so it's really important for us to see that. It's not just a story. Lots is happening. Um, if we go back to the epic tradition and we look at all the epics, you know that every single epic we've read, the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, the Divine Comedy, if you look at all of Shakespeare's plays, leave them out for a minute, but you could include them. If you look at all those epics, you'll find they have one thing in common. Every one of them is dealing with an injustice somewhere. There's a disorder in a people. We've talked about this. The epic hero is somebody who's been singled out with a divine, uh, with a divine purpose. He has a divinely appointed task. He has to do something to deal with these disorders in order to bring something new into, into this pe people's way of life and changes it. So he becomes the means of bringing something new was true for Iliad, with his sense of honor, Odysseus with this, what a marriage means, um, Aeneas for the sense of a city, what a city is, um, um, Dante as a learner. Every one of them had to deal with disorders in a people that, that the people wasn't aware of. So it meant they carried a really heavy burden. They had to pick up things other people didn't. It was a 
in some sense, you can say it's a crucifixion. It was a hard task. They had to bear this because they were being asked to do something other people didn't. Um, and you know that through that action, something is brought into the world to help correct those disorders, whether it's the Greeks in the Iliad or... Yeah? So we've been through this. You all don't have any questions about that, right? What happens in Moby Dick radically, radically changes that, and it signals a change for the West. The injustice that Ahab is dealing with is not the injustice of another person. It's a whale. It's this thing of nature, and it raises this question of whether nature generally is intrinsically good or evil. That's a fundamentally Protestant problem. <coughs> it's not been a problem. Go back over the, all, the, the long list of great works. Has anybody ever, has any artist ever looked at nature and saw the nature as a villain? It's always been a human being. The suitors, Hector, um, Turnus, and, you know, people in the Divine Comedy. We've entered a world in which people are, are, have, have a reason for questioning the very nature of nature itself, whether it's not inherently evil. That's a Protestant phenomenon. When the Protestant worldview developed with, with um, Calvin and Luther, they looked at the fall, the effects of the fall, as complete. Complete. The Catholic says we were wounded. I've been repeating this from the beginning. The Protestant says no, the effects of the fall were complete. We're depraved. Man is essentially depraved. He's lost his free will. That's why, that's why that Protestant culture begins to decline. Because living out those doctrines is a, just I mean, a, not an easy task, as you could imagine. Ahab's going to be the figure. I mean, that's what we're going to find when we read this. So for the first time in history, we're, we're, we're looking at man in conflict with nature and questioning the very nature of nature itself, whether it's inherently evil, whether there's a malevolent spirit behind it, or whether it's inherently good. And Ahab and Ishmael are going to give us two very different readings of that. I should, pick out, I should have picked out a couple of passages. Um, next, next week I'll, I'll pick out a couple just to give you a sense of that, because you won't get them for a while in the book. Um, but So we're still in an epic world. We're dealing with an injustice. But now we're dealing with an injustice on a metaphysical scale. It is much larger than anything seen before. So mid-19th century, two worldviews are coming, three worldviews are coming into conflict. A scientific worldview, call it a Catholic Christian, and a Protestant Christian. Very different ways of looking at the world. Right at the heart of this book. Okay. <coughs> I've already um, spoke about Ishmael, so um, one of the questions that I just want to ask here at the outset, and we'll come back to it at the very end of the book, lots of secular critics at the universities read Moby Dick as an anti-logocentric world view. Logocentric means there's a logos at the center. Everything is intelligible. There's an affinity between us and the world so we can read everything, there's intelligibility, the Logos is everywhere permeating the world, so we find meaning everywhere. Lots of people, um, moderns, read Moby Dick as an anti-Logocentric work. 
anti-logocentric. That's an astonishing reading to me, just astonishing. Because there's not a chapter in the book in which Ishmael doesn't find meaning everywhere. Everywhere. Everything means. So, um, how do we look at Ishmael at the end of the book? What, what does he come back to tell us? In some ways, he seems to... It, the resemblance between Ishmael and Dante is so striking that it's a question in my mind whether he isn't picking up, consciously or unconsciously, the worldview that we had when Dante left off. And I'm saying that believing that, that uh, Melville was in some ways anti-Catholic. I mean, he, he, he had no other way to talk about Catholics than the popish. You'll, you, I think there's some passages in here that'll read like that. So what is Melville showing us? What is Ishmael showing us? How are we to read him? Um, think about Dante, but think about these current problems too and where Moby Dick fits in this line. Okay, those are just some of the some of the background issues that I think are are good to keep in mind. I want to just read some passages here to get us going, and then I want to turn to Moby Dick. I mean, uh, Winterstone. Go away. found interesting the, the focus of a logos or the absence of a logos yeah and you you kind of see that sort of in the early going a little bit I think when you know when um, uh, Ahab is on the deck and he's looking out yeah and he says none of that brings him pleasure mm -hmm. anymore yeah you, you see that sort of as the absence of a, mm -hmm. a logos but then right after that first whale kill mm -hmm. uh, you see Ishmael kind of looking at that and saying only man can be that brutal. And you sort of see the two characters beginning to move off in different yeah, directions. Yeah, there. yeah, that's so good. Yeah, yep, yep. I don't think he fully, I mean Ishmael is a distinct character because he's telling me the story all along, but gradually you'll, you'll, we will experience episodes where the verging becomes clearer and clearer, yeah, yeah. Because early on, he really does identify with everybody. You know, when they make that when they make that compact. Um, here, I want to I want to just read this, and then I'll t I'll, I'll leave a, a couple of minutes for questions. To, um, but I want to make them brief because I want I want to get to I want to get to Winner's Tale because um, that should be our focus today. But I wanted to get you guys going here. Um, turn to the first chapter, Lumings. I just want to quickly read some to give you a feel for this man that we're going to live with for the next couple of months. Wonderful person, wonderful person. Um, <coughs> chapter one, Moonies. Call me Ishmael. Some years ago, never mind how long precisely, having little or no money in my purse and nothing particular to interest me on shore, I thought I would sail about a little and see the watery part of the world. It is a way I have of driving off the spleen and regulating the circulation. Whenever I find myself growing grim about the mouth, whenever it is a damp, drizzly November in my soul, whenever I find myself involuntarily pausing before coffin warehouses and bringing up the rear of every funeral I meet, and especially whenever my hypos get such an upper hand at me, 
that it requires a strong moral principle to prevent me from deliberately stepping into the street and methodically knocking people's hats off. <laughs> then I counted how time, high time to get to see as soon as I can. That's not just a winter mood for me, speaking personally. <laughs> God. <laughs> so, if any of you find yourself falling in line behind funeral lines or ready to get out of gun, pick up Moby Dick and start reading. <laughs> this is my substitute for pistol and ball. With a philosophical flourish, Cato throws himself upon his sword. I quietly take the ship. There's nothing surprising in this. If they but knew it, almost all men in their degree, some time or other, cherish very nearly the same feeling towards the ocean with me. One of the great um, <coughs> motifs of this work will be the sea. You, because it's all going to take place at sea. Now, just for a minute, keep, keep the context of this alive in your mind. Remember, almost all of the Odyssey took place at sea. A um, good part of the Aeneid did. If you remember the Divine Comedy, when Dante reaches the Paradiso, he says, I'm going to take my little bark and we're going to enter onto a sea that's going to be treacherous. And he warns everybody about going ahead. He said, only those who are really brave should go ahead because it's dangerous. Why? Because the home is our land. That's where we build structures. It's where we define things. The sea is what's always indefinite, uncontrollable. Um, so often it's likened to grace and it's not something to fool around with. When man enters that world, he enters a dangerous world. He has to be careful of it. So remember that the ship is like an image of a home. It belongs to port, but it's contesting nature. Right? It's always, it's always going to be at risk. And also remember when um, in the, in the uh, Odyssey, you remember what happened to the Viking ship when they dropped Odysseus off? Do you remember? It was turned into a mountain because of the hubris of the Phaeacians and thinking they could go, remember, go across the ocean like men's thoughts. They didn't have anything to be afraid of. What was the danger of that? Because the gods are of nature. To presume <coughs> to master the sea is to presume to master the gods. So there's that sort of fragility, that peril, that's always a part of this quest. Man's at sea, he's dealing with the unknown. From a Christian perspective, it would be something like grace. Remember, in the ancient world, the gods were always in nature. So anytime man thinks he can master nature or overcome it, he's approaching a hubris, pretty serious hubris. Something will happen. <coughs> And he talks about all men longing to go to sea in here. Um, go down the um, next paragraph. Um, who do you see? Posted like silent sentinels all around the town stand thousands upon thousands of mortal men fixed on ocean reveries. Some leaning against the spikes, some seated upon the pier heads, some looking out over the bulwarks of ships from China, some high aloft in the riggings as if striving to get a still better seaward peep. But these are all landsmen of, of weekdays pent up in lath and plaster tied to counters, nailed to benches, clenched to desks. How is this? Are the green fields gone? Where do, 
Where do they hear? What do they hear? Interesting contrast. The land's our home, but there's a way in which we can get too fixed. Our life can get too settled. I said this before when we did, remember, the earth is not our home. I, we did this when we did the Aeneid, I think. Remember, I gave that Augustinian sense of the pilgrim and the city, because there are three cities, the city of Satan, the city of God, and the city of man in which we're a pilgrim. We should never feel too much at home because this is not our home. It's not our final resting place. There's something about the way we live our lives that should keep us in a state of exile. That, and remember, when Christ came here, he was in exile. His home is with the Father and the Spirit. And he, this, Remember he said, Son of Man has no place to lay his home. This was not his home. It's not our home. We're pilgrims. So there's a, there's a sense in this image here that men can get too fixed and not answer that longing for something more. And looking at the sea awakens that feeling in them, that there's something more mysterious. I think we've all had that. Remember when Suzanne and I lived on the west coast just a few miles away from Hapun uh, Bay and we'd go to the ocean and um, I, there's something haunting. I can remember evenings when we would have barbecues or meet with friends on the beach, you know, when the sun goes down and the, the sound of the waves lapping. There's something so fundamentally, Doc, what was your experience? What, what was the one thing that you felt in you know, Northwestern that you missed? Oh, I grew up living so close to the ocean, um, but I never thought about it. And then I went to school at Northwestern and I felt landlocked. It was like sleeping always on the side of the bed with your arm dangling over, and then suddenly being in a double bed with two people on either side of you. you know, it was just, it was claustrophobic to be in the middle of the country. I don't know if this is relevant, but I'm going to tell you this anyway because it was really funny. We'd grown up in the West Coast, so, and, and we had lots of experiences at uh, Heaven Bay with friends and you know, late nights. And um, when we went to, uh, when I took a position at Maglin in New Hampshire, we went to the East Coast and we, I wanted to find a, a fishing restaurant or where we could eat fish. We finally found one on the coast and sat there wanting to time it so that we could be there when the sun went down because we were so used to sunsets on <laughs> you know where this is going so used to these beautiful sunsets on the way and we sat there on, on the patio on the outside of this uh, when it got dark and kept waiting for the sun to go down <laughs> and when it happened we sat there, we sat there and it was an amazing experience because not only was it a disillusioning moment but I thought can the east coast ever know romance <laughs> Truly, I mean, you could, you never see the sun go down in the ocean. It was it was it a, I mean, how stupid can you be to not even know that? And we were, kept sitting there waiting for the sun to disappear. It does get dark. Funny, huh? It does get dark. I know it does. Like somebody using a dimmer switch. <laughs> go down again. They must get just as nigh the water as they possibly can without falling in. And there they stand, miles of them, leagues, <coughs> islanders all. They come from lanes and alleys, streets and avenues, north, east, south and west. Yet here they all unite. Tell me, does the magnetic virtue of the needles of the compass of all these ships attract them thither? He will go on and talk about the, the sea again. Um, he gives the reasons on the... On the paragraph where he says, no, when I go to sea, I go as a simple sailor. 
go down a few lines. And at first, this sort of thing, unpleasant enough, it touches one's sense of honor, particularly if you come from an old established family in the land, the Van Rensselaers or Randolphs or Handy Canutes, and more than all, if you just if just previous to putting your hand into the tarpot you have been lording it as a country schoolmaster, making the tallest boy stand in awe of you. He was a school teacher by profession before this. I mean, he, he actually moved around, and so did Melville, by the way. This in lots of ways um, matches Melville. The transition is a keen one, I assure you, from a schoolmaster to a sailor and requires a strong decoction of Seneca and the Stoics to enable you to grin and bear it. But even this wears off in time. Now here's what I'd like to focus on for a moment before we get, um, put Melville away for the morning. What of it? If some old hunks of a sea captain orders me to get a broom and sweep down the decks, what does that indignity amount to weighed, I mean, in the scales of the New Testament? Do you think the Archangel Gabriel thinks anything the less of me because I promptly and respectfully obey that old hunks in that particular instance, who ain't a slave? That should be underlined. Who ain't a slave? Tell me that. Well then, however, the old sea captain may order me about, however they may thump and punch me about, I have the satisfaction of knowing that it's all right, that everybody else is one way or another served in much the same way, either in a physical or metaphysical point of view, that is, and so the universal thump is passed around and all hands should rub each other's shoulder blades and be content. You could actually see a virgin here. Because remember, Ahab has received this thump multiplied a million times. I mean, he lost a leg. The whole question at issue here is everybody suffered. Everybody suffers something in our world. The question is, what do we do with that suffering? We can get very self-righteous. We can get vindictive you know what do we do so that's this question is at the heart of this book what do we do in dealing with the injustices of the world and right now remember now he's undergone this trip he's coming back and he's describing himself as he began it and it's really interesting to think about that because remember is the Ishmael writing this book the same one who started it couldn't be different when he started it he was this innocent young Adam you know, heading out into this new world, he's got these resentments and these injuries, he's ready to shoot somebody and he's following in line with, you know, funeral lines and something dark in him. He doesn't know how to deal with it, he doesn't know what it is. But here, in a, in a very light tone, he's talking about this, this matter of injustice, this, this all of us being abused by somebody else and what we do with it. And here he says, Remember this line, either in a physical or metaphysical point of view, that is, and so the universal thump is passed around, and all hands should rub each other's shoulder blades and be content. Can we do that? <laughs> um, Don't touch anything. <laughs> what, you want to say that lighter, light, louder, Mike? I, I know how hard it is for me. I want to... <laughs> Never mind, that says it all. <laughs> um, again, I always go, this is crucial too. Again, I always go to sea as a sailor because they make a point of paying me for my trouble, whereas they never pay passengers a single penny that I ever heard of. On the contrary, passengers themselves must pay. 
And there is all the difference in the world between pain and being paid. The act of pain is perhaps the most uncomfortable infliction that the two orchard thieves entailed upon us. But being paid, what will compare to it? <laughs> oh. The urbane activity with which a man receives money is really marvelous, considering that we so earnestly believe money to be the root of all earthly ills, and that on no account can a moneyed man enter heaven. Ah, how cheerfully we consign ourselves to perdition. Um, who are the two orchard thieves? Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve. Okay, be clear in that, because here in the opening, we've, Melville has already made it clear not only by this description of this universal thump and the concern for injustices, but this allusion to Adam Eve. This, if we're going to call it an epic, I would call it an epic, but whatever, an epic or novel, its scope is suddenly enlarged. He has gone back to the original causes of things in the garden, and we will find that true over and over. It, it will be a mythic book. It will have an epic scope. There will be an epic cosmic, cosmos to this that we don't find in novels generally. Remember, the novel usually deals with a city, an individual against the city of nature. We've entered a, a cosmic world, the sea, going back to Adam and Eve. Um, go um, down to the middle of the next paragraph. In much the same way do, com commonali do, the, commonal do the commonality lead their leaders in many other things at the same time that the leaders little suspected. But wherefore it was that after being repeatedly smelt, after having repeatedly, sorry, smelt the sea as a merchant sailor, I should now take it into my head to go on a whaling voyage. This is the invisible police officer of the fates who has the constant surveillance of me and secretly dogs me and influences me in some unaccountable way. Now remember, one of the great themes of mid-America in its Protestant character is this notion of predestination. This Calvin's notion that men are predestined. They're, they're either saved or damned. Now think about the implications of that. God, God, according to Calvin, predestining, predestining a man to, to, to damn, to be damned, before he was even born. The Catholic notion is that all men are created good in God's image introduced into um, the American character is this notion that some men are inherently evil. They come into this world <clears throat> destined to die. So here in the opening, Don, or Melville is introducing this idea of predestination. But look at the way that he deals with it. Um, this the invisible police officer of the fates who has the constant surveillance of me and secretly dogs me and influences me in some unaccountable way. He can better answer than anyone else, and doubtless my going on this whaling voyage formed part of the general program of providence that was drawn up a long time ago. It came in as a sort of brief interlude and solo between more extensive performances. I take it that this part of the bill must have read something like this. <laughs> this is funny. Grand contested election for the President of the United States. So these are the newspaper headlines. You know, contested election. Big words. In little print, whaling voyage of one Ishmael. In big print, bloody battle in Afghanistan. By the way, have things changed? I mean, the relevance to this moment right now is just stunning to me. So in big print, we've got a president, or 
contested election, God. a battle in Afghanistan. What has changed? And in little print, this note about this one Ishmael and whether a providential God is looking out for him. Though I cannot tell why it was exactly that those stage managers, the fates, put me down for this shabby part in a wailing voyage when others were set down for magnificent, magnificent parts in high tragedies and short and easy parts in general comedies and jolly parts in farces. Now think about this. He's talking about tragedies, comedies. Far so he's looking at this work as a sort of anti-genre. It doesn't fit in. It's not like things that have been written before. This is something wholly unique. Remember what I said about mid-19th century, America trying to find its voice, breaking from England? This is something entirely new. It's deep, it, all, all British novels are dealing with secular subjects. You can't find God in a Jane Austen novel. Here we're going to be dealing with predestination, providence, um, justice, um, and short and easy parts in genteel comedies and jolly parts in farces, though I cannot tell why this was exactly, yet now that I recall the circumstances, I think I can see a little into the springs and motives which being cunningly presented to me under various disguises induced me to set about performing the part I did, besides cajoling me into the delusion that it was a choice resulting from my own unbiased free will and discriminating judgment. Is there a providential action in our lives? Is there in this book? Does it, if there is, does it mean we don't have free will? Or do we? So the issues in this book, I mean, this is about a whaling story. It seems, you know, I hate what movies do to this, God, seems to be about catching a whale or getting vengeance back on a whale. The, the issues are so much deeper. Okay, so those are some of the major issues that Melville's going to take up in this mid-19th century prophetic work, I'm going to call it. Let me stop for a second. Any just brief questions? I'll take a couple of minutes. I want to get to Wiener's step, but I just wanted to get you guys going. He's fun to read. He's a delightful guy. What he's, what he's going through is so gentle. He's so, he reminds me of Peter, you know, jumping overboard, rushing in, you know, just sort of innocent and and before he knows it, he's going to be way in over his head. But uh, he's a delightful person. So, any questions about all these? I, I know that this is a lot to throw at you. Do not look at the size of the book. <laughs> this, my experience as a teacher, you you sign this book and they get it. The first thing they do is go to the back and count the look how many pages they've got. They've got to endure. I do have a question, Bob. Yeah. Um, you say that, um, that the sea is like grace, and are you saying that when you stand up, and, and I've done this many times because I grew up on the um, ocean, um, you stand on the ocean and you look out and, and you, you feel this sort of longing. You don't know quite exactly what it is, but you feel, you feel it. It's yeah. visceral. Right. So are you saying that that we are looking for grace that way. I, I'm, I'm trying to understand how, why you say that the sea is like grace. Let me, let me try to describe that a little bit differently but to answer your question. Um, this is going to be very academic, but you already know the cast of my mind. So, um, I, I, don't, I don't know that any of us 
would put it in those terms when we're there at the ocean, whatever this feeling is that's haunt. I'm going to call it haunting and romantic. It, it is. The, and it is visceral. I mean, that's a really good word to describe it. it you feel it. It's, I would say, get, get the church structure out of it for a second. And we're talking in terms of literature. Remember, it was there in the Odyssey. It was there in the Aeneid. It's there in Shakespeare's The Tempest. It's, it's there in Winter's Tale. Um, because Autolycus has to, I mean, uh, Antigonus has to take that babe at sea, and it's at sea that, that uh, Hermione comes to him in a divine vision. Get all of that out for a second and look at it in literary terms, or, or human terms. I would say that there's something transcendent in the human soul, and, and being earthbound gets to us, that at some point we feel whatever we've accomplished won't answer that that there's a longing for more, that, that by nature we were made for more. St. Augustine's way of putting it was, um, my soul is restless until I rest in thee, that um, God created us, created us with infinite desires because the ultimate object that would answer infinite desires is an infinite God. If we get landlocked and we start acting as if having all these things will satisfy that, and then we're going to be dissatisfied because we know that they won't answer, that there's always something more. So there's something transcendent in the human soul when we stand there on that threshold, on land, aware of the sea, there's some way in which the sea um, makes active that longing that there's something more. So I wouldn't put it in terms of grace, that it's it's, it's a natural thing in us as humans that we experience naturally when we're there. If for a moment we shift, we can see why, why writers would associate it with grace, that you enter a world of things you don't have control over, you can't make the way you want, that it leaves you in a position of helplessness, you're, you're longing for more. If you go to sea, you're in peril, it's not your home, you don't have control of it. So you've entered strangeness, mystery. So that would be my way of explaining that, okay. that, that um, when we're in those moments, we don't think there's grace. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. truthfully speaking, if we think about what grace is and the mystery of it, you can see why writers would associate the sea with grace and the struggle that we have with it and why, the dangers and things like that. That's been true for most of the Homer, even though he wasn't Christian. Shakespeare for sure, Dante for sure, Melville. Thank you. That answer it. It does. Wow! Surprise myself sometimes. <laughs> Any other questions? Kathy, you have a question. I know. <laughs> no, honestly. How many pages? <laughs> <laughs> next next week, I'm bringing a dunce cap. Who's gonna get it? I'm really eager to see, I just hope you really throw yourselves into this because this is an amazing, academic settings don't always do justice to it. You know, it just, it really is an amazing book. So I hope you enjoy it. Okay, no questions? <laughs> What's going on? <laughs> I don't believe you don't have any questions. We have lots of pages for questions. Yeah. 
Okay, let's do Wiener's Tale. I want to see if we just can't. I want to go back to one um, one point that I made last time that I really believe should be underlined in order to do justice to this last part of Wiener's Tale. I've talked about art and its importance all along. Sometimes wonder if I'm not wearing a welcome thin, but and I've I've even gone so far to say that as art goes, so does culture. If we lose contact with art, there's a sure sign that our culture is in decline. Art is one of the most important sources of recovery, of restoration, of moving forward and renewal that we have. So when the arts go bad. And I, my belief right now is that they are. I mean, the stuff coming out of Hollywood just shocks me. This, I watch movies a lot and inflict them on Suzanne, and just, just so many of them are bad, just awful. Sentimental, cynical, I mean, they're just awful. But um, one of the things that we've talked about before is this notion of participation and um, the way in which art draws us into a world so that we can experience the way we do our ordinary lives and repeatedly talked about the difference between books that give us an about kind of knowledge and an is knowledge, knowledge by experience. When we enter literature, when we go into a book or a movie, we go into that and experience it as experience. There's a difference between reading a book about something, a report about a murder, and actually experiencing it or being involved in it. I said that this at the very beginning, at very, very beginning, the very first class I had, I remember talking about how important it was to read this literature. I didn't, I didn't want anybody not to come if they didn't read it because I really thought it would be worthwhile anyway. But the importance of participation was absolutely crucial and I gave the uh, example of um, the Eucharist. It's one thing to know about the Eucharist, yes? It's another thing to actually experience it. It's one thing to know about um, um, contrition. It's another thing to actually experience it. You all know that. It's one thing to know about forgiveness, to have a, an idea in our head. It's another to actually f experience it, because experience it undoes us, I think, most of us. To be forgiven is a humbling, hum terribly humbling experience. What a gift to us, the, the source of um, spiritual strength that it gives us, that it can strengthen us in a spirit of humility, the way it does. So this notion of participation, I've said before that knowledge, poetry gives us knowledge by experience. We're allowed to enter in. We go back into the world again, but we go back into a world formed. Because remember, artists always give us a form. So it, the, the experience we have is meaningful. It's leading us to something. Um, it returns us to the world, but it's helping us to see and feel things we didn't in our ordinary experiences in the world. So the value of art that it, is that it's like a grace. God, sorry, it's like a, Debbie, don't get me on this. It's like a grace. Um, it takes us back into this apparently random world, like the one we live in all the time, but with a form and a purpose so that we can see things and feel things that very often we miss as we go through our daily lives. So this notion of 
participation. Hold on to that just for a second. I also said, because of its relevance to Winter's Tale, um, that it's important to see the difference between the supernatural virtues and the natural virtues. The natural virtues are, are those virtues which we should be struggling, as Catholics certainly, I wish it were cultural, we should be struggling to live up to in our lives. Temperance, justice, prudence, endurance, courage or endurance, right? We should all be struggling to become more temperate, more just, more prudent, um, more courageous. Those are things we should be working on because they're, they're within our capacity, our, our, our natural capacity. We can do that on our own. God gave us the ability to do that, yeah? This thing about faith and nature coming, it, it, should be, it should be the most natural thing for Catholics to grow up struggling to do that. In our world, gone. What Catholic knows the natural virtues today? It's just stunning to me. Um, those are natural virtues. Those are within our power. The supernatural virtues are gifts. They're not within our power. They belong to that world of grace. We, don't, we can't control God. What we do is go down on our knees and ask. I mean, the constant appeals to the Spirit, breathe into me, um, be with me, help me to be with you, All, you know, those prayers to, that we be one. The supernatural virtues are gifts. We cannot control them. But to live them is to put us in a position to be like God. They're divine in nature. I mean, Christ is the one who revealed them to us. To grow closer to Him and become more like Him. But to do that means we always put ourselves at risk with our nature. To love, let me go back, to have faith, genuine faith, means to have faith when you have no reason for holding that faith. Or it's not faith. It's reason. You're back in that world again. To have hope, genuine hope, is to hope when you have no reason for hoping again. Otherwise, what's hope? To love, to, to love is to love when you have no reason for loving. That's what Christ showed us in all of his virtues, right? Does it mean, does it mean um, faith and reason are at odds? No, but it does mean that, that there is a difference between them, a, a gradation. Our, our call as Catholics is to reconcile them, to bring those two together. But I want to, I want to be clear on what the, differences is the difference between them is because the supernatural virtues are so at issue in this play because of what happens at the end. So it's really, it's important to get clear on what they are. Today, we tend to, we tend to secularize those, to devalue them, right? Um, I hope I'll get a bike today. Oh, I love that cake, or I love that, your hair. You know, we use these in such a secularized way, their, their supernatural meanings has been virtually lost to us. Um, have, have faith in me. Well, it's good to trust in somebody, but I mean, faith strictly means it's a supernatural thing. We're, we're putting our faith in what we believe is eternal, unchanging, absolute of the love of God. So it's really important, and it seems to me Shakespeare's really clear on this because of what he does in the play. It's really important to see this. Maybe the best way to see this is this. Leon, we've talked about the difference between the masculine and the feminine in the play. The men tend to live in their heads. We've talked about this, yeah? Um, Leonte uses his mind, and in that one scene where I read that passage, he goes, is this nothing, is this nothing, then nothing is nothing. His mind annihilates being. It destroys it. 
the, uh, the natural object of the mind, according to Thomas, is being. Shakespeare believed that too. We should, like Ishmael, we should see the goodness in things, the beauty, the purpose. The modern mind is pushed back in, into abstractions in the head for men and women. The modern mind lives in its head. The modern person lives in its head. Um, all the men keep trying to push Leontes to marry again. How could they not? If he doesn't marry, they're not going to have an heir. The state's going to go down. Think of the magnitude of that pressure. If there was a reason for doing anything, it would be to have an heir, because if you don't have an heir, the state's not going to continue. So if you look at the men in the play, they are constantly pushing with their practical intellects. And what we learn from the play is that the practical intellect is strong enough that it can destroy itself. Reason by itself, can, it can give a reason for killing itself, suicide or killing somebody. Or A reason without faith is very often in danger. What do the women do? The women wait. Paulina says to Leontes, do not marry until you have my consent. He, he's king. He won't be the king he can be until he learns how to serve, how to obey. Can, can Leontes come out of that penance on his own? He absolutely cannot, because the whole problem with him is he's always had his will. Until he learns to give his will up, he will never be the man he could be. He has to wait on Paulina. Is that really? I hope that's clear. Can Paulina assert her will? Absolutely not. She's doing it on condition of the gods. She's waiting for them. What she's saying to him is, you cannot marry because she knows. Or Remember, the oracle said, he's a, he's a tyrant, that, that which is lost. He, he will be without an heir until that which is lost is found. What do Americans always want? Certainty. They want to use their reason to have it now. Practical reason couldn't be more active in our culture. This is what you do to get this. You want to be satisfied, do this. Satisfaction, immediate satisfaction, do this. What are the women doing? Paulina, Hermione, waiting. In faith. I mean, I hope that's good. 16 years, imagine that. Now, put it even darkly, more darkly. Leontes accuses Hermione of, of tr being treasonous, betraying him. He puts her in the tower, just like Henry, by the way. I hope that Henry VIII, just like, he puts her in the tower. Um, until the oracle comes, and you remember what happens. He says, it's not true, it's not true. Ten seconds later, the messenger comes and says, your son is dead. Um, I think I told you this. Um, one of the one of the better students I had when I was teaching Wintertail, when we got to this point in the play, he stopped and said, "Why is it that we have to lose everything before we come to our senses? Why is it so often the case that it's until we are at the point of almost losing everything that we change?" You know, that's that moment. Then he says, "Apollo's mad. Remember, angry um, because he lost his son." That's the heir, that's the continuity of the kingdom. This isn't just the loss of a son, the kingdom dies in that moment. It has no future. When Hermione hears that word, she collapses, her knees give way, how could she not? I mean, that's her son. She just, she's been a, she, to me, she's one of those heroic women. She and Paulina, to me, are amazing. She has been so strong. She's withstood all of his accusations. She stood up and then she hears that her son has died and her knees give way. That's that moment when Leontes really turns finally. I mean, then he says, I've been wrong. 
Camila was faithful. And you watch something because everything he did, everything he did in the play up to that point was to use his mind to justify what he did. When Camila left, his reason looked at that as proof that Camila was wrong. He would not even allow the possibility that what Camila was doing was response to him. So we watch reason go mad to justify itself all the time. And we know that because when he gets news that is Hermione, or when she collapses, he undoes it all and says Camila was faithful. Reason makes that clear. Yeah? Are we clear? Is everybody? So Paulina and Hermione lose everything that they love. In the next scene, Paulina's going to take the babe to Leonte and say, this is your daughter, look at her. And, um, and she will threaten the men to um, protect their eyes because if anybody gets near her, she's going to scratch them out. She's the only figure in that play that has the courage to stand up to the, the men power. I want to come to that in a minute. But Antigonus is going to be sent away with the babe. Leonte is going to say, get rid of this babe. Antigonus takes it to Bohemia, drops it off, he dies. Hermione loses, Leontes loses his wife, his son, one of his lords. Hermione loses, and the kingdom. Hermione loses her son. Um, her mistress is in, her governess is in disfavor. Paulina loses Hermione, the son, um, and her husband. And the daughter. And the daughter. How many women facing those kinds of circumstances would do what Paulina does? I mean, I want to say this as starkly as I can because if we don't see the magnitude of the faith that's working here, we're not seeing something. Imagine a woman having her husband killed by this man and then be becoming the counselor to this man for the next six years, standing beside him, not hating him, not reminding him, and she does her, she keeps using the word kill and murder every once in a while, but <laughs> it's really, but it, you know, she does it in, a, in an understated way. She's, there's no malice in what she's doing. She's trying to keep Leontes honest. How many women would do that? I mean, it would be the easiest thing for a woman to say, you killed my husband. You know, I'm not going to forget this. She doesn't do that. For 16 years, she stands next to this man as his counselor. What, what, for what? For something that she has some control in the outcome of which? Not at all. She's waiting for the gods. So if we don't see faith in this perspective, it seems to me we're not seeing the degree of heroism Shakespeare's showing us a woman is capable of showing. Okay. So the supernatural virtues and this whole notion of participation to me is crucial. We're not talking about forgiveness. We've entered into an action of it. We enter into it, experience it. Okay? Um, let me just quickly read a couple of lines. To, um, and then I want to go to the end. I can never hear these lines. Um, Act 2, scene 1, about line 110. This is when Leontes first confronts Hermione. He says to the lords, get the sun out. He doesn't want the sun to be present to what's just going to take place. He accuses her of adultery, and then she's, remember, she says, this is about, um, Act, Act 2, scene 1, line 
105 or so. There's some ill planet reigns. I must be patient till the heavens look with it. It's so clear that she frames this in terms of something divine, right? This isn't just I'm suffering. She relates her suffering to a larger order. There's some ill planet reigns. I must be patient till the heavens look with aspect more favorable. Good, my lords, I'm not prone to weeping as our sex commonly are. The one of which vain do perchance shall dry your pities. But I have that honorable grief lodged here, which burns worse than tears drown. Beseech you all, my lords, with thoughts so qualified as your charity shall best instruct you. Measure me. Look at what. Take a serious look at what you see to see if what I'm being accused of is really here. Um, shall best instruct you. Measure me. And so the king's will be performed. She's absolutely obedient to her husband when he couldn't be worse. Leonti, shall I be heard? He don't got to put a whiner. He does not like the fact that she's getting attention right now. Um, Hermione, who is it that goes with me? Beseech your highness, my women may be with me, for you see my plight requires it. Remember, she's pregnant. Do not weep, good fools. God. Remember we talked about the language of Othello and Hamlet? the nobility of those men. It's why I, 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 I'd so strain to try to, because I know that most people look at Othello and think he killed himself with a bad man. I, if we don't see the heroism here that Shakespeare's showing in these people, we're, we're losing something of the, of the godlike dignity that God has given all of us. Because in the modern world, it almost doesn't exist. We have such a low image of ourselves in our world. I, I hope that I don't need to prove that right now. I just hope it, you all know that. Do not weep, good fools. There is no cause. When you shall know your mistress has deserved prison, then abound in tears as I come out. This action I now go on is for my better grace. I mean, I, I can't read this without thinking of martyrs. How many people go into suffering <coughs> thinking, I give myself to this strength? Most of us would fight, whine, cry, blame, strike back. She knows that she's entering into a grace. Um, she have any control over anything right now? None. She has no power. He's the king. This action I now go on is for my better grace. Adieu, my lord. God. Remarkable woman. Adieu, my lord. I never wish to see you sorry. Now I trust you shall. I shall. My women come. You have leave. She's almost more concerned for him and what he's about to lose than she is for herself. If we didn't hear words like this, how much would we lose on our lives? The point I'm making is we participate. Hearing a woman speak these words has got to make us better. Woman and man. I mean, I said in something I wrote for a publication once that or the, actually it's in the opening chapter of the book I'm writing, that I feel like I'm better as a man for having carried Jane Austen in me all my life. She had such an influence on me. Um, can we be as good not hearing words like this? My answer to that is no, that we enter into this work and participate in it. So it's not knowledge about, it's not in our heads. We actually live it, feel it. It changes us, or hopefully it can. 
So that's Hermione. Um, remember when Paulina comes um, um, sorry. I, actually I'm not going to do this. Um, I wanted to go to the that scene where she tells the men, well, go to Act 2, Scene 3, just quickly, I want to... She comes in with a babe, all the lords tell her to get out. Leonte says, get this witch out of here. He keeps scolding um, Antigonus and calls him a, um, a, um, a hag-beaten coward that his wife his wife beats him. He's trying to insult him to get him to get his wife out of there. About line 60, um, good my queen, Paulina says, good queen, I say good queen, and would by combat make her good. So were I a man, the worst about you, for Leontes, force her hence. Paulina, let him that makes but trifles of his eyes first hand me on my own accord all off, but first I'll do my errand. The good queen, for she is good, hath brought you forth a daughter. Here, here tis, commend it to your blessing. She lays the babe down. This is, it seems to me, it's so much more typical of women. She looks at the babe and picks out every one of the features in the face and says, here's you, you know. Um, and he still denies it, says no. Let me just ask this one question, and I want to go on because we've got to get to the end why are the, all the men so cowardly, and why is Paulina the only one to stand up to the king? Well, self-interest. I think they they have uh, they've spent a whole life adapting to the king's wishes and, and and sacrificing their own economy by doing it. Yeah, and so they're they're over adaptive to a to a system that's in place. Yeah, yeah, and her. Uh, She's free of it. I don't know. Yeah. She has a different state of mind. Yeah. Mm. This is not going to set well with people, some people, <laughs> the women in here, but let me. Um, the men are dependent on the king for their lives, right? Mm -hmm. And they've grown up. I mean, Tom's way of putting it. If, if you grow up, you, you get encultured. Remember Plato's cave. They depend on him. How likely is it if they. And by the way, Thomas More belonged in this category. I mean, he was Chancellor of the King. He separated himself out from all the other men and a whole circle of Catholics by refusing to do something. How many men did that with him? Very few. So it isn't to say somebody can't, but it's rare. Because in an interest of self-preservation, your dependence is so great, you... Paulina stands outside of that circle, not the way she was raised. I mean, the, the traditional way of looking at marriage uh, until recently was the family's here at the center of our culture and the man stands here as a protector, you know, looking both ways. And so often men give in to the world. We know that. Um, in fact, being in the world is one way of escaping the family and the, the, the burdens of um, taking care of it. What happens when women enter this world? and become wage slaves of the state, dependent on money, on a job, as women have today. What will happen in time? It's not, I don't believe women aren't, there aren't I don't believe that some women aren't gonna stand up, but how much harder will it be then? 
You know, when you, when when you have a family, and your family depends on the money that you bring in. I, I'm having trouble agreeing with you on this one. Go ahead. Because I look at the women as having two layers of control. Because Paulina, the other wives aren't doing this either. I mean, Hermione's the exception, but you don't see the other the two wives. wives. Well, okay, because they don't. They're the subservient ones that are staying home and listening to their husbands. <laughs> I, you know, I, I mean, I think, I don't, I, I, I agree with you in your second premise that when you become part of the state, it's like an immediate yeah. kind of thing. But Pauline is exceptional, way beyond other women of her time. Well, I, I don't think that's true. I, I, we have, I don't know where, and I just want to spend a minute because we could go on and on. Yeah, got to, I, I mean, we just let our disagreements set here. But you read literature and you go, um, Penelope in the Odyssey. Modern's got this notion that we've got it all right and somehow earlier periods lack things, you know, that, wait, 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 let me, if you look back at the literature at almost all periods and read it not as a history about something but enter into that world, that isn't what you find, what you're describing, what you find is something different. The exception is the man and the woman, whether it's Achilles, when all the other men are going along, when they're, when they're kowtowing to Agamemnon, I mean, let it be there of the men. The point I want to make is when you become dependent on a way, and remember that was the opening work, the Iliad, where the men had become accustomed to something that, that, so that honor code defined their way of life and the disorders buried in it. You can disagree, I, I would argue. When women enter the workforce and become dependent and that becomes an cultured thing then, look at what happens in time. I, I myself have no questions that, that some women will rise up. They will have the strength, like men, but I'm just making a generalization. What happens when we do that? When, when our families depend on it? What would the effect be? Because the risks then become much, much greater. Let me just leave it there, even if there's a disagreement. Because I think, for me, it's worth talking about. I mean, at least mentioning. Because what, what we're watching here is not only a culture with the same kind of disorders that we saw in the Iliad, with Achilles or Odysseus or you know, whatever, wherever you want to put it. We've got something on the modern world and it's deliberately set up to highlight supernatural virtues, faith, hope, and charity. Because if there's anything remarkable about those two women, in opposite ways, she obeys her husband, she says, I, this thing I go on is for my better grace? And Pauline is fighting. One is completely obedient, the other is ready to kill the king. So Shakespeare's showing us the whole range of virtues in these two women, you know, as a way of responding to what's going on. But the, but the point I want to underscore here is, whatever we say about them, we can't do anything to diminish the supernatural virtues at work. Because both of them, in opposite kinds of circumstances, are acting out of faith and hope. And presumably a love. And it's not an ordinary thing because we don't find most people doing this sort of thing. Let me go on to the end and read the end and, and then tie this up. If you go to the end, in the um, Autolycus, oh, by quick, we've talked about these clothes and fathers. This whole thing about clothes seems sort of silly, but I, I don't want to pass it. I remember when Autolycus had to switch clothes and he put on the, the more royal clothes and the way he prissed around, if you remember the movie. Don't just dismiss that. If, so, if, you're, a, if you're a 25-year-old, four or five years out of college, and you just get a job in Silicon Valley, or in Trump Tower, I mean, let it be wherever you want. 
and suddenly you're an employee in this community and what's your image of yourself going to be? I mean, how many people sort of prance around because they say, I got this job with, you know, and your self-identity gets so attached that you, that with surfaces, the prestige, whatever people wear. Mm -hmm. So what Shakespeare's showing us isn't peculiar to this royal court and, you know, it's, 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 to me it's timeless that, that very often we, we get our identity, we take our identity from the status that people give things in the work world. There it was royalty under a king. Here it could be under a corporation. Dress for success. Huh? Dress for success. Yes, yeah. Or, or take on an image with success. And that image takes the form of clothes. Or So just don't pass that off because this whole thing of surface identities and wearing clothes and who we are, because Shakespeare's making fun of them the way he does with Autolycus. The other thing, remember that um, this, this question that I've raised about whether or not there's a providential action, whether the gods are at work here. If Autolycus had not been present at a number of points in the end of the play, could the play have worked out the way it did? If he had not been there to give Camilo and Ferdin, or Florizel and Perda to close, they couldn't have carried on. So Shakespeare's showing us that something more is going on even while these people are plotting and thinking that what's going to happen is going to be the result of their plans. Is that clear? So, is that clear? It's like Hamlet. Remember when Hamlet says there's a providential, you know, there's something else going on here. So, when you read that in, just be aware that even though we don't see the gods, and I'll, I'm going to give some quotes from the lines that will even help with this. Something more is going on. And it's funny because it's the, it's the comic scene. We're looking at it and saying, oh, this is stupid and boring. It's, it's exactly there that the gods are most at work. Um, Paulina is, is telling Leontes not to marry, right in that scene. She's doing everything on her end to keep alive the oracle. And what's unfolding over here is pointing towards a resolution, even though we're not there yet. And clearly more is going on than the characters themselves see or are making plans for. Well, I was just, in, in, in regard to that, I mean, theoretically, the ending would have been different if he hadn't been there, right? Autologous. Yes, because the fathers were on their way to see the, the father of the son because they didn't want him to think they had anything to do with the girl. Go and over so, that again, sorry. Well, so <laughs> who, who, who? The shepherd. The, before the, the thief entered the scene, yeah. they were on their way to, to in essence... Camilo, Florizel, and Perdita. Yes. No. The, no, yeah. the, no, the, no, the no, two no. fathers. The two fathers. Were on their way to... What two fathers? It's just one father. It's well, the shepherd and the shepherd. Oh, the father and the son, sorry. The shepherd and his son. Yes. Okay, go ahead. They were on, they were on their way to see... The, the, the king. Oh, right. Polixenes. Yes. yes. Because they wanted, they didn't want him to think that they, the father and the son, had anything to do with, with the, her birth. Yeah, right. Yeah. Exactly. But when when the, the thief came in, they wound up going on the, he took them to the ship. Yes. And so they, you know, they wound up with Leon. Becoming lords. Yeah. And so, I mean, the whole, the whole, the whole, without that intervention, if you will, yeah. the whole scene would have unfolded. Yes. Yeah. Differently. Yeah. I'm glad. And by the way, notice the, and there's that line, um, I'll come to it in a minute, where Autolycus says, the unjust man thrives. 
in these, you know, because he doesn't have to do anything. It's like gifts are being poured in his lap, and he and he doesn't know what to do with himself because he's so used to cheating people. And Shakespeare's showing us a great a great grace is taking place. Even a thief, in fact, the action depends on his being a thief to carry it out. He says, "I can't, I cannot be honest. It wouldn't be." If he tries to be honest, it would probably throw the whole action off. <laughs> Truly. I mean, and, and think about this. The whole first part of the play was tragic. It was heavy, in some ways oppressive. This last part is comic, it's funny, and we know that strange things, something strange is happening. All of these people, the, the shepherd, the father, and the son, Autolycus, are going to be made lords. A grace is elevating everybody. So it's not this, he's not as good as I am, he shouldn't get this. You know, I deserve it. It's everybody is entered into some grace-giving action. And it's radically changing the basis of everything. It's going to make possible the resolution at the end. So what's happening at the end, even though it seems like it's clownish and foolish and peasants, that's not what's going on. Uh, Shakespeare's asking us, in fact, <laughs> here's the this is what signals it. Um, after um, Antigonus drops off the bay, you remember what happened. He gets chased off by a bear and he's eaten by a bear. When the two shepherds come to describe what's going on, um, the father says to his son, I, watched, I heard the cries of the men on the ship. I watched this bear eating um, the man. Oh, God, where is that line? Um, oh, darn it. Where He describes it in terms of the, the bear still dining on the body. Um, oh, sorry, where? Here's sight. Oh, it's a. Uh, Do you have it? So yeah. Where is it? It's um, chapter three, scene three, three. about 100, 105 lines. That's where he been. Oh, yeah, here. Shepherd, name of mercy. When was this boy clown? No, now, now. I have not winked since I saw these sights. The men are not yet cold under water, nor the bear half dined on the gentleman. Think about that language. We have just left this heavy, tragic action. We shifted down the world, and a guy is talking like this. Um, Nor the bear half dined on the gentleman. How can you not laugh? I mean, what is there to do? He, that's a laughable statement. What Shakespeare's, this is sort of amazing. If we're in a tragic world, and we've lost somebody we love, what's the natural response? Mourn, to grieve, I mean, to feel heavy. Why does Shakespeare do it? Why does he do it? Because we know, we know looking back on so many of the episodes that were horrible at the time, just horrible, just almost unbearable, that when we look back at them in time, isn't it often true that we look back and laugh at them? That we find other, there were other things going on that we didn't see? <coughs> Shakespeare's enlarging our vision. He, he's helping us to step back to see that even though what's going on is really tragic and oppressive and heavy, it is possible to laugh at it if... How, how would God look at this? 
I mean, it's so God would not mourn, I don't believe, because he knows something else is going on. He, he, God is always bringing some good. When we respond to things, do we step into that perspective so that we can find, we can act as if we know some good is going on that will help get us beyond this tragic situation? So we've entered a pastoral world. It's an expansion of our vision. We're being asked to see things, hear things differently. This, and that line, to me, signals it. Because if you read those lines, you know, you get the description of the, the ship going up and down and in, into the heavens and down. Those are not accident. What Shakespeare's showing us is that heaven and earthly orders are intertwined. They're interfused with each other. Something strange is happening. He's taking us into a new world. We've entered the world of romance, foolishness, but what we're going to see in a few minutes is some great grace is taking place. Let's, here, let's, I want to get to the end. Let's turn to the end. In the next to the last scene, it's really interesting. Um, when Autolycus and the Lords arrive, they get a report of the reconciliation between the two kings from Lords. So it's described as a narrative. It talks about father and son meeting and tears and you know the two men um, being reconciled again. And then we go to the chapel scene. Why did Shakespeare give us 5-2 in narrative and give us 5-3 in drama? We get, we get a, this is this about knowledge I was talking about a minute ago. Yeah, we get an about knowledge. We're not there. It's not unfolding dramatically. It's reported to us. So we know about it. In the chapel scene, we're taken immediately into the chapel and we participate in it. We're there. Why did he do that? So that we'd look at that last scene differently? That we would experience that last scene differently? How? Because it, it takes on more importance, doesn't it? Yeah, why? Because you're participating. Yeah, if he had, if he had dramatically... just observing, you're now participating. Yeah. So you're going to look at it, feel it differently. Yeah. If he had rendered Act 5, Scene 2, the report, if he had rendered that dramatically, immediately, what difference would it have made in the ending? If we got the reconciliation dramatic, rendered dramatically, not through narrative, if it was rendered dramatically, and then it was followed by the chapel scene, would, would it have made a difference? Diminish the chapel scene, I think, because you would have already kind of seen that reconciliation in the you would experience the yeah. of Is that clear? I really believe, and that, that shows his mastery as an artist. It would take away some to put the two next to each other because it would be so intense. <coughs> to do it the way he does this allows it to experience but know about it, and he saves the immediate experience for the greater moment. And, which is another way of saying the play, the whole action of the play is pointed towards this resurrection of Hermione. Mm -hmm. And this question about art that I want to ask him, why is art so important? Why does he have her come down from a, as a statue? Because he's calling our attention to art. He, she could have just sat there and come out. Why does he put her in the form of a statue and then have her descend? Because clearly he's making a connection between reality and art. What is he doing? Why? Here, let me just read some of the. Turn to the very end. Paulina brings everybody into the into the um, chapel. It's a holy space. It's a chapel, and everything that happens here is almost liturgical. It's ceremonious. She is very careful. 
there's a sense of awe and strangeness, and everybody feels it. They look at this statue, this work of art, this work of art. It's static, it's not moving. This work of art, it's there. And suddenly, this work of art moves. Why does Shakespeare do this? Why does Paulina do this? Because she, she could have just had Hermione there behind a curtain. They come in, they look at her, and they're, they're in awe. The, the word that they use repeatedly is, like in line, this is Act 5, Scene 3, line 19, uh, prepare to see the life as lively, mocked as ever. Mocked, imitated. As if art is mocking repeating it, imitating it. Um, Leonte says, um, he looks at her, oh, thus stood even with such life of majesty, warm life as now coldly stands. When first I wooed her, I am ashamed. Does not the stone rebuke me for being more stone? Part of, this is art. He wants to move. And he can't because it's art. So he's feeling ashamed. I mean, he's in the presence of this art, so... Again and again, we're getting this feeling of strangeness intensified because it's a work of art. It's so lively, he wants to embrace her. Repeatedly, she says she will stop it. <laughs> Leonti says, no, don't. Um, line 80, do Paulina for this affliction has, she says, I'll go farther. For this affliction has a taste as sweet as any cordial comfort. Still me thinks there is an air comes from her. What fine chisel could ever yet cut breath? Let no man mock me, for I will kiss her. Good, my lord, forbear. The readiness upon her lip is wet. You'll mar it if you kiss it. Stain your own with oily painting. Shall I draw the curtain? No. Then she gives a condition. This is really interesting. That goes to this question of reason and law, reason and law and faith, whether they're opposite, opposed to each other, or not. Either forbear, quit presently the chapel, or resolve you for more amazement. If you can behold it, I'll make the statue move indeed. How great, what she's saying, how great is your faith, your belief? If you can behold it, I'll make the statue move indeed. Descend and take you by the hand. But then you'll think, which I protest against, I am assisted by wicked powers. Shakespeare's raising a question. There are bad things that artists can do. We all know that. There's art that's not good. Is this of that kind? Is she, is she, taking, is she abusing the place of a magician? Or, or abusing the place of an artist by trying to be a magician? To do something she shouldn't do? Leontes, what you can make her do, I am content to look on. What to speak, I am content to hear. For tis as easy to make her speak as move. This is like the people in the Bible, saying, the, the Pharisees saying, how, how can you forgive sins? And then he heals them and says, to show you that I'm God, remember? Mm -hmm. And he heals them because they, they would assume that he would never be able to do that. And that confirms that he can forgive them, that he's God. Do you all remember? Mm -hmm. Mike? Um, um, what to speak, I am content here. For tis as easy to make her speak as move. Who can do that? Nobody can. Paulina, it is required you do awake your faith, then all stand still, or those that think it is unlawful business, I'm about, let him depart, proceed, no foot shall stir. Music, always at this moment in Shakespeare's play, music always comes in the background. In, in holy moments, 
what happens is always accompanied by music. Music awake her, strike, tis time to send. God. Remember, he's already noticed that there are wrinkles in her, which is important because if, what would be the implications if, if Paulina had presented a statue without wrinkles? It would be like an idealization in art. Because there's, there's two corruptions in it. You can idealize something the way Petrarch did. Remember we talked about the Shakespeare sonnet? You can idealize a woman. You can foul her to see her as her is with all her faults and still in the image of God. Much harder to do for an artist. Yeah? Easier to idealize somebody or to, or to overly fault something. Tis time to send, be stoned no more, approach, strike all that look upon with marvel. Come, I'll fill your grave up, stir, nay, come away, bequeath to death your numbness. God, for from him dear life redeems you, you perceive she stirs. Start not, her action shall be holy as you hear my spell is lawful. Do not shun her until you see her die again, for then you kill her double. Nay, present your hand. When she was young, you wooed her. Now in age, is she become the suitor? Oh, she's warm. If this be, if this be magic, let it be an art lawful as eating. Polixenes. She. It's interesting. She comes to embrace him. She descends. It seems to me that's the ultimate act of forgiveness. He. I don't think he quite knows what to do. This is how complete she forgives him. She goes to him. When everything in the play says he should go to her, you know. But um, I think we're in a world of supernatural virtue. Remember, in Dante, in the Paradiso, we never saw anything like this. We were in heaven. This is a paradiso moment on earth where a supernatural event is taking place. She hangs about his neck. If she, if she pertain to life, let her speak to. It's that that everything unfolds. Perdita kneels down. She's in the presence of her lost mother. The mother sees the daughter she never saw. It's an overwhelming moment of joy and what would you call it? Marvel um, at what's happening. Mother and father, or mother and daughter are united. The two, um, the whole family now is reunited because the earlier reconciliation between the two men has taken place. So, um, Hermione's. You gods look down and from your sacred vials pour your graces upon. Remember, I, I go for my better grace. Remember when she was accused. She saw herself in, in a situation in which the gods were active. Here at the end, she's acknowledging the god. You gods look down and from your sacred vials pour your graces upon my daughter's head. Tell me, I know, where hast thou been preserved? Where lived? How found? thy father's court, for thou shalt hear that I, knowing by Paulina that the oracle gave hope thou wast in being, have preserved myself to see the issue. She and Paulina have been waiting 16 years. There was nothing they could do. They held steady, waiting. The men pushing to get something done. The women living in faith. Um, Paulina tries to get everybody together and then makes that comment about now going off to die and and Leonte says, peace, Paulina, be still. And she brings um, Camilla and um, Paulina together. And so it's a moment of grace. The men have been elevated. Um, the sins have been taken away. A winter's tale, a period of penance is over. 
Leontes could not have come out of that penance on his own because he had to learn to give his will up if he were ever to be the man he was given to be. And here they are. So this is the play. Now I've got two questions. One is, one is, what is Shakespeare showing us about art here? We've been talking about the importance of art from the very beginning. Here's the last work on Shakespeare that we're going to do, and it focuses on art. Um, what's he telling us about art? Why is it important, number one? And is there a divine action going on? Is there a providential action? Has something been going on? Can we point to it? Um, well, this, which one do you want to take first? How about the art? What's he doing with art? Let me try to sketch this out a little bit. The oracle, or, or Hermione's words, this action I now go on is for my better grace. She says, the heavens look down. You know, there's some ill planet reigns, she says. Do you remember? So she puts it in the context of something large. She knows what she's suffering belongs. Something, it's a part of a larger action. Something's going on. This action I now go on is for my better grace. Um, the oracle. We know from the oracle that the gods have been involved, even if we've never seen them, right? Because otherwise they couldn't have said, Leontes is a tyrant, Hermione is innocent, Camilo a faithful servant, um, um, the, heir, the, the regime will be without an heir until that which is lost is found. Perdita, the question is, Perdita, what's found? Is it only the woman? Are we to understand that? But the oracle makes it clear the gods have been involved. Otherwise, how could they have said that? Now, if we go back, it's really clear that everything that Shakespeare shows us, there's, there's no visible representation of the gods, as there is in Homer. So Shakespeare's being faithful to the way that we experience the world, right? We see it just the way we see each other here. But it's clear that there's something else going on. Can we see it? Can we pick it out? Can we point to things? When Antigonus drops off the bait, he describes that dream. Hermione comes to him, remember, with spouts of water pouring, I mean, light. And it's just a, it's a frightening, dreadful image. It's, and he's going to lose his life and the ship crew, presumably because they were implicated in the death of the sun. And the, the, that is, they went, they accommodated to the king when they shouldn't have. They died. So the gods are present there in the dream. And then here she mentions this. Is there a divine action going on, even though we don't see it? I think there is. We've talked about the role of Autolycus with his clothes, his presence. Um, he has these wonderful lines, too, and this is on page 95 on our book. You don't have to go there. Um, when, when Autolycus meeting with Florizel and Perdita, Florizel said, when they talk about the plan with any sense that it can be successful, he says, it's a miracle. Perdita says, when she's asked to put on the clothes, I'll play this role. It's as almost as if some of the lines suggest that it's like a play being performed with a artist. Um, and then Attilica says, if I had a mind to be honest, fortune wouldn't let me. His own dishonesty is serving something higher right now. He doesn't understand it. Um, what's all this about? 
I think what Shakespeare's showing us is this. I, I said this before. Remember, there's no growing art tradition in Judaism or Islam. We're about to Sorry. There is in Christianity, because if an artist, if an artist is imitating reality and at the center of reality is the resurrection, then the highest form of art would put that fact at its heart. Yes? And or put it differently, could could somebody Jewish or Islamic create a work in which the resurrection was a source of renewal for whatever the problem was in their work? No, because they don't believe in it. Do you see? So will their art ever be a source of renewal for a remember the regimes are dying. Sicily's dying out. There's no air. The question is whether art has the power for renewal. If you were in a Jewish Islamic tradition, would there ever be a rendering in, in human terms of a resurrection? No. And by the way, it's going to be it's going to come up in um, Moby Dick. Ishmael is going to be resurrected, and the Lazarus figure is made an important figure at the beginning of the story. If you remember the the Lazarus figure. Um, so what Shakespeare's showing us is that for art to fulfill its highest calling, it has to be faithful to its greatest truth, the power of the resurrection. So the great, remember Plato's cave, the greatest artist would be that artist who could actually render the effects of a resurrection on our lives. And that's what he's done in Winter's Tale. So it's partly about the power of the resurrection, but it's also about the power of art, because he's clearly asking us to focus on that at the end. So the point is that art is our means of finding our way out of the cave? Will that be true for all artists? No, no but I guess I'm distinguishing between the art and the artist. <coughs> the art is the means by which the proper artist shows us the way out of the cave. Would you, would you agree? Uh, yeah. In terms of, because... If, if you describe art in a, in a general sense, that it could be many things. Right. Uh, yes. Yeah. Because you know that lots of art will keep us in the cave. I mean, it'll render something and not get us out. The great artist, he said, was have, will have to render the world according to appearances, the way we actually experience it, but reveal something in the way that he does it more. And it seems to me Shakespeare's doing that in a superb, amazing way here. Um, it, it's one of his most remarkable achievements, I think. Um, Perdita, that which is lost is found. Is it just Perdita, the person returning, or something more? I think it's the kingdom. The what? The, the kingdom, the order as they know it. The but world it, to them. But it's also the king's humility. Um, say he's finding himself before the, re the reason took it away or he relied on the reason Leontes yes yeah well and it is grace it's the return of acceptance of grace I, I think do you want to describe it Dr. way you saw it and you go ahead cool. <laughs> Would you I don't remember what you're talking about so. what is what's recovered when she returns. That which is lost is found. What's found at the end? Is it just her returning so she's been found or is there something more? Everything is returned. Yeah. I mean, both kingdoms, 
have been restored. The friendship has been restored. Um, the mean has been restored. Yeah. The mean? There's the a mean, right the order. The balance between faith and reason has been restored. Yeah, funny. Or, 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 or realized in a way that was not even true before. Because all these great blessings take place at the end. There's this, there's this fullness of life that's, that's been found again. Because everything is restored. There are blessings everywhere. Everybody's it's like super added something to their lives. They live, grace is one way, but grace is such an abstract word, which you have to see it as in terms of this plenitude. There's this super abundant goodness that, that everybody is sharing and participating in at the end. Um, all sadness has been put away. Yeah. I, um, I kind of see Brita as a picture of innocence coming back and she's, you know, what's been lost back in the kingdom. She, it's now, she can renew, or the kingdom can be renewed by new innocence mm -hmm. or it's brought back. It's kind of like that, was it, I'm not sure I got my portion, that she had a, somebody from outside had to come back in mm -hmm. to fix things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I kind of see Perdita mm -hmm. in that role. Yeah. There's, don't you feel this great fullness of life at the end everywhere that's restored? And yeah, it's new hope. It, and it's through her return. Um, but don't forget, it's at, it, at the center of that action is Pauline and Hermione who do what they do to make it possible because if they had not, and watch how things cooperate. They're doing what they can, but something else is going on. Camilo makes that plan with Florizel and Perdita to go back. So the humans can't be passive. They're not being passive. They're doing, they're doing the best that they can to deal with problems. Yeah? But, and, but something far more than what they're doing is, is working. And we see the fruit of that at the end. And there's no way they could have predicted that or foreseen that as an end of what they were doing. It's so much larger than that. Humans have to do what they, the good that is given to them to do, whether it's Paulina with Leontes telling them not to marry in the face of all the lords, or Flores are quarreling with his dad and then making that plan with Camilo. You know, Everybody's trying to do the best they can, but it's interesting to, to see that something is happening in addition to what they're doing to bring this fullness about that none of them could have none of them could have predicted or foreseen. Is you know, because Shakespeare wrote this one later in life. Yeah. Is 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 he flashing back a little bit to the Merchant of Venice in a sense? Wasn't wasn't it Portia that said early in that book how difficult it is to maintain the mean? That yes. balance between yeah. faith and reason. Yeah. And in this play, it took sixteen years of events yeah. to ultimately, in the end, find or restore, depending on your perspective, that yeah. balance. Yeah. Just, I mean, I would just be careful, in, yes, to what you're saying. In, in Merchant of Venice, Portia's remark has to be seen in, a, in an Aristotelian context in terms of human natural behavior, because she's got philosophy and virtue on her mind. So for her, the mean is between being niggardly and spending foolishly, you know, and, and, and whatever, all the virtues, actually, I mean, between justice and injustice in the courtroom. So the, the context for her is the natural order. Um, I, I think there's some, there's a there's hint of divine things going on there, but not like here. Here, if you're going to use the word mean, it has to be 
I'd see I would avoid it here, but I would say it's a reconciliation between faith and reason, between the supernatural and the natural virtues, that the human, the good humans are doing everything they can to be good, but there are supernatural things going on. So the the what happens at the end is a reconciliation between two orders. That's a little bit different from what's going on in merchant. Um, let me stop because we're way past. So I'm sorry. Um, can we leave it here? Amazing play. It's an amazing play. In some ways, it, I think it's his greatest work. Um, we start Moby Dick in earnest next week. God. I understand.